0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Michael Luca, a professor at Harvard Business School. We're going to be talking about his new book co-authored with his colleague, Max Bazerman. The book is called The Power of Experiments, Decision-Making in a Data-Driven World. It's an accessible introduction to the topic of how social science experiments are being used more and more both for business and for improving public policy. So, I'm a big fan of this book. I'm so much of a fan that I actually bought a copy for all the incoming students in our master's program in applied economics to sort of get them excited about how these techniques can be applied in the real world. It's very uh, accessible, you know, it's not not getting into the technical detail. It's just an introduction to like see, you know, all the different ways that experimentation um, can and has been used uh, in, a, in a wide variety of contexts so mike thanks so much for coming on the show thanks
1: peter for having me
0: so why don't we start with just the the big picture i mean every every school kid learns about experiments in their grade school science classes um, and you know your book's not about like calculating confidence intervals and doing the statistics so so what's the what's the value of your book what's the the contribution there
1: Yeah, so that's a good question. Maybe I'll start with a little bit of background on the book. So basically, Max and I have been teaching a course where we were working with students uh, to design and implement behavioral experiments. And during teaching it, we really started thinking about the evolving role that experiments have come to play in recent decades. We've, of course, all been taught about experiments. We've all sort of heard about the scientific method but the evolution that we saw is that experiments have now come to play quite a different role, which is not just an esoteric role among researchers uh, to learn something uh, for their next paper, but by companies, by governments, uh, by NGOs uh, looking to solve problems that they're struggling with. So the thing we were interested in is what is the role of experiments in helping to guide managerial decisions?
0: So so why 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 haven't been people been doing this all along? I mean, we know, you know, if we have a new medicine, then we wanna roll, you know, a vaccine or whatever, we know that we wanna roll that out and do uh, do an experiment. Uh, why why haven't people been doing this in, uh, you know, in businesses or in public policy?
1: Yeah, so vaccines and medicine is an interesting area where there have been corners of the world where there's been lots of experimentation for decades now. Uh, there's also marketing experiments have been around for a while. Um, where Max and I really came into this is thinking that it's not really as widespread as it should be. And experiments are not as systematically used as they should be. So we could ask a couple of questions. First, why are we seeing experiments uh, becoming more popular as a managerial tool now? And there, I think there are a couple of factors going on. So one is just data has gotten less expensive. So one implication of that is that it's easier to measure the impact of a change. And that's necessary if you're going to be running an experiment in a company. Two, uh, randomization has also become easier. So if you think about some of the early adopters of experiments, um, yeah, we could think about medicine. You have like a clear outcome. You could uh, randomize people into different treatments. We also have uh, tech where it's relatively easy to change Uh, the design of a page and show people two different versions of it. So areas where randomization costs has come down. Um, And the third factor that we've been thinking about is there's been an increasing recognition of the flaws in human decision-making, kind of the biases we make when making decisions. And I think it's easy to be overconfident thinking you know what works. And I think we've realized that in many cases, it's hard to predict what's going to be effective. You can think about all the work on forecasting and becoming a super forecaster. And to us, experiments are just one piece of the puzzle, so one extra way that you as a decision maker could help to uh, get confidence in understanding what the right decision is in a situation. And the last thing I'd say on factors that have led to the rise of experiments is that we've seen lots of high-profile case studies of experiments that have come about uh, where that's kind of nudged an industry or nudged a company to start using experiments at more at a bigger scale. So um, maybe I could give you an example or two of that.
0: Yeah, I think that'd be great to to, to hear about where, where this got started.
1: One of the contexts that we talk about early in the book is the UK Behavioral Insights Team, right? So this is an organization that started on a shoestring budget back in 2010. Essentially, yeah, think about this as a handful of people had read Nudge. So David Halpern and Owen Service were some of the early players in the space. They had read Thaler and Sunstein's work. I thought, okay, this is interesting. We want to bring this into government and started thinking about how to bring behavioral insights into the tax department and other areas of UK government. And one of the things they did is they realized that tax letters go out to a lot of people. Lots of people pay their taxes behind. And uh, the letters are intended to increase back tax collection. So they realized that by taking a little bit of behavioral economics they could think about different uh, letters and different texts that might lead to different payment rates. So they uh, added a single line to a letter that that leveraged what economists would think about as social norms or psychologists would think about it as social norms. And what they did is they essentially took the existing letter and layered on an extra sentence that said by now X percent of people have already paid their back taxes. And what they found is that that one change when they experimentally tested it, was worth tens of millions of pounds of tax dollars being brought uh, forward. So there were a couple of lessons that they took from this. So one is that this tax letter had been going on for a while, and that was a missed opportunity to use some data to make a better decision. Two, they realized that there really is value of bringing a little bit of behavioral economics into uh, government and policy settings. And three, what they realized is Uh, beyond the use of behavioral economics, that you could really uh, bring these types of experiments into policy decisions at a much larger scale than they have been used. So one of the pieces of the fallout of that experiment is that lots of other governments started testing tax letters. And in fact, within UK tax department, they now have a team of dozens of people that are dedicated to using behavioral economics and experiments to try to better design the process of uh, tax collection.
0: So I could I definitely see why this is new to economics, you know, because a lot of our basic models, you know, you can you can convey information, you know, a lot of our models have no information. People just optimally choose, you know, based on preferences and all that stuff. Um and then in the, you know, the fancier models, there's there's information where um you you learn something. But yeah, our our sort of core stuff that that we used to teach and, and use for our own theorizing was all uh, you know, fully rational. So no one ever forgot something or was, you know, like adding an extra line to a letter, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be expected to be impactful. But then on the other hand, I mean, as you mentioned, like marketers must have been doing these experiments forever. I mean, if you tell a marketer, like, hey, change your ad copy and it could matter. Isn't this like just kind of their bread and butter? Like, oh, you know, finally the economists are waking up to the obvious. Yeah.
1: So at some level, you might say that we're economists more wed to say neoclassical models and other people might have been um potentially and for sure there are areas where economics uh, held different assumptions and other fields but i would push back a little bit on this because let me give another example of an organization that woke up to a major blind spot where a little bit of data went a long way um, which would be ebay now let's think about ebay ebay you could think about as you know it's a tech firm it's a large company they have lots of data they had data savvy people. They had all the ingredients that would have made it feel obvious to use experiments to test a broad set of things. And for sure, they had been using experiments to test different platform designs for a while. But there was a particular analysis they were doing that related to their marketing campaigns where they had a giant blind spot. And in fact, we have a chapter in the book on this called "The eBay's $50 million blind spot or so, so something along those lines, kind of highlighting this mistake Uh, that they had made. So eBay had been advertising on Google and Bing um, and other search engines and social media platforms uh, trying to get people to come to eBay. And in around in the early 20 teens, I want to say around 2013 or so, uh, they had looked at an internal analysis. They got in external consultants and tried to understand what's the return to ads Uh, For eBay? Like, is it a good investment that they're spending a bunch of money on Google ads and Bing ads? And uh, the analysis they did did a couple of things. It was observational data. And you can imagine just kind of looking at people uh, who saw uh, ads for eBay versus people who didn't and see what's the likelihood of them converting. And that gives you some sense of what a return might be. But that's not particularly satisfactory because of selection bias and the obvious kind of things that would go wrong in non-experimental data, you could push a little bit further. And in fact, the consultants that had come in had pushed in this direction. You could do something like, like let's see areas where there's lots of ads being shown at times when lots of ads are being shown, see how many people are coming to eBay then relative to areas where fewer uh, eBay ads are being shown at the time. So just to be concrete, you can imagine you're in San Francisco. I'm in Boston. In times when eBay advertising seems to be heavy in San Francisco, do you see more people buy eBay stuff through eBay in San Francisco relative to Boston? So that's the flavor of the analysis they were doing. And if you looked at it that way, it looked like there's about a sixteen hundred percent return to that ads that they were purchasing on platforms like Google and Bing. But a team of economists had come in, including Steve to Dallas. Tom Blake, Chris Nosko, and said, well, you know, that does something to get the endogeneity and to help sort of get a causal estimate of eBay ads, but we're not totally convinced. The reason you might not be totally convinced is because ads are extremely targeted. So the ads are being shown to precisely the people that they think are likely to engage with eBay at exactly the time when you think they might be uh, tempted to engage. So they pushed and the finance group within eBay agreed that they should do more to experimentally test some of the ads that they were doing. So they started with some natural experiments where they looked at a time where Bing ads were shut off and it looked like ads might not have been doing as much as they thought. And then they ran some more intentional, um, like some pure RCTs, where they would turn off ads in some markets, but not other markets. And to our first approximation, they saw that the selection bias was so severe that that the ads are basically wasted that it was misleading even when you did this more careful non-experimental version and um, that there was very little returns to the ads that they were running in fact they were largely wasting the 50 million dollars so you're saying um is marketing ahead of economics or is where marketing is practice ahead of research you might say and is everybody already using experiments where they need to use experiments and i would say both the bit example and the eBay example are ones where organizations had big blind spots and had to wake up to see that they had a missed opportunity to use a little bit of data more carefully uh, to learn something big about their operations.
0: Right. Yeah, that's a great example. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, that's that's a great example. And one of the um, there was a, a magazine article I read that had the had the metaphor I thought was quite good for explaining why why you get these kind of. Results, which was uh, their example, was suppose you you had you were working at a pizza shop and you handed out you gave coupons to to someone and said, "Hey, hand these out on the street," um, and you know to get people to come to my, to my pizza shop. But the person you found out that he he handed out you know he came back at the end of the day and, and pretty much everyone who'd come into your pizza shop that day had a coupon. And so you said, "Okay, great, you know, it must be uh, really wonderful that we're getting all these coupons out there." But then. Um, it turns out he just stood outside the front door of the shop and everyone who was going to come in anyway, um, got a coupon and sort of the analogous thing here was, was eBay saying, you know, paying Google and Bing to, uh, to advertise for the search term of eBay. And, you know, anyone who types in eBay, obviously if they get that far, they kind of already know about eBay and they were probably going to check eBay anyway. So if they type eBay and then click through on the ad, you're not really getting anything that informative about what they're doing.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's a little bit of nuance they had at the end where it's like the overall effect was that the ads that eBay was investing in were by and large a waste. But there were some corners of the world where they could start to see how might you as a manager start to reshape their whole strategy uh, to get more out of ads. So they saw that terms that were not associated with eBay did seem to bring in some new traffic. So they what they were able to do is twofold. First, they ran the experiment to tell them, what's the effect of the packages they were running in the way that they were running them. But two, they could run a little bit deeper to learn something new as well and help to uh, get some insight into a path forward. Um, some, one of the interesting things about the eBay case is that after that experiment, there was a pretty big fallout at eBay and at other companies too. So if you look within eBay, they started thinking, well, like similar to Bit. Well, here's a way that we weren't using experiments, but maybe we should run more. And they started testing other types of advertisements uh, using experiments. And that, to me, I think is one of the one of the values of uh, of running this type of experiment is it could demonstrate not just the value of the thing you're testing, but the value of just having a more systematic mindset for using data to dis- to guide decisions. So I think after that, people sort of bought in that this is an important thing the company should be thinking about. The other interesting thing about eBay is that after that paper, there was a nice paper that looked at what other companies were doing and saw, I think it was about 11% of companies that were large retail, like kind of large brands, um, stopped advertising on their brand name as a result of it. But the interesting thing is that other companies didn't fully internalize this lesson about experimentation because they didn't really see a spike in experimentation at other companies, even though there was a spike in experimentation at eBay. So I think the word of caution there would be some of these other companies probably could get more mileage by not only taking the headline insight from the eBay experiment, which is, you know, be careful about advertising on your brand name because those people might be coming to you already. But the second thing is, really think more carefully about what data might give you uh, insight into the effects of your strategy.
0: Right. And I guess that sort of gets, it relates to what I said about uh, marketing. I think marketing, marketing academics love to run experiments. That's kind of their, their bread and butter. But um, I've heard from other people in marketing or who've interact, tried to sort of, uh, you know, convince marketing specialists within firms to engage in, in experimentation. And sometimes there's a bit of pushback because the, especially if they don't like the, uh, the results, you know, and often the results are, well, your marketing campaign isn't actually having an effect or, you know, you're, you're in charge of a, whatever, million or billion dollar budget for, for advertising. But, uh, our indications are that your advertising is actually not doing anything. So, you know, and, and if you're the person whose, whose job kind of depends on that advertising being important, you have a lot of incentive to try to say, no, no, you're just, you're just missing the real, you know, subtler effects of, of what's going on.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot to unpack there, but one of the things is just what is the organizational setup? Are you doing enough as a company or as a policy, as a as a policymaker to sort of encourage an experimental mindset or mindset of data-driven decisions? So, you can imagine things might have played out differently at eBay if there was more of a mindset of just kind of rewarding experimentation, rewarding the use of data rather than kind of uh, rewarding just the outcome. For sure, you want to know the outcome, but uh, the marketing team wasn't the one that initiated uh, the experiment. In my view, it would be nice to have more teams be open to running experiments, even when it may prove that some of the things that they were trying weren't as effective as they thought. I think companies could do a lot to help to promote that type of mindset by just kind of saying it's okay. Part of the value of experiments are some things are going to fail, but it's better to know it now than to be running at a larger scale. Uh, policies that you think are effective but turn out not to work.
0: Right, so that would certainly, so I guess this kind of turf wars or someone who, you know, uh, in any kind of organization, if there's a person who's invested in a particular approach being perceived as successful or as the right approach, that's going to that's gonna be one barrier to getting experiments implemented. Um, but of course, certain, for, you know, they're not, on the face of it, they're not going to object by saying, no, we don't Want this information that you know, or maybe they might just kind of you know barrel through and say, "Well, I know I'm right, and why waste time checking uh, that I'm wrong?" But what are the other reasons that um, that uh, aside from defensiveness, sort of the legitimate and and not so legitimate reasons why uh, organizations might be resistant to to running experiments, or what kind of what kind of excuses do do you have to deal with when bringing these in?
1: It's a great question, right? So it's like you're say you're sitting at a company and you want to bring more data and more experiments to decision making process. There are going to be barriers. So what are the barriers? I think you've already we've discussed one of them, right? So there may be kind of like um, misaligned incentives on some parts of the organization. Uh, some of it, uh, like there, some of the real issues that come up is just what's the cost of running this? What's the feasibility of running an experiment? Is there data that we could get? Um, that's going to meaningfully measure uh, the outcomes that we're interested in. So there's lots of settings where you'd like to run an experiment, but where the thing that you're measuring is so imperfect that it may just not be worth running an experiment at all. There's other uh, there's other surmountable things. So some people sort of have this situation that experiments are too costly to run or too complicated to run or too unfair to run. And that, I think uh in some cases is not the case. I have an article and we discuss this in the book as well, where we think about like are those real barriers? And then what we think about is well we there it's a it's a form of a natural experiment, but where you think of them as almost incidental experiments. Places where companies or schools or governments ran experiments where they weren't really looking to run an experiment. They were looking to do something precisely because it was simple or because it was fair. Um, and I'll give a couple of examples of this. There's a nice paper that looks at Dartmouth roommate matching. And um, you could think about like people coming to college and having to figure out who's going to be their freshman year roommate. And there's lots of ways you can assign roommates. You can imagine doing an extensive interviewing process. That sort of seems complicated to do. Um, uh, there's only so much kind of systematic matching you could do. You imagine auctioning off rooms and just having the highest bidder get the nicest room and go go down the line. That may seem a little bit unfair, though. There are I think only that an have.
0: economist would imagine that, but yeah, right, <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Um, you could imagine um, other versions of this, but what one common setup is just to kind of. Do a little bit of matching, and then do random assignment of who your roommate's going to be. Now, they did this. It, it wasn't designed to be an experiment, but it kind of it had this element of randomization that essentially turns it into uh, an experiment precisely because it was viewed as simple and a fair thing to do. Um, and people ended up being able to use that uh, experiment to learn about what the impact of a roommate is. So Bruce Sacerdote has some nice work on this. Uh, showing that you know, somebody who joins a fraternity is more likely to have, uh, that is more likely to have, their roommate is also more likely to uh, join a fraternity. So kind of looking at what the spillovers are between roommates. And it was a random assignment that allowed them to learn that. But the other insight of that is the fact that there was that random assignment. Now it sort of points to the fact that sometimes randomizing could be a simple, easy thing to do. Um, another example of this is Asim kwaja. And collaborators have uh, a paper looking at the impact of visits to Mecca, right? So doing a pilgrimage. then in that situation, um, they were using a visa lottery. And a visa lottery is an interesting example because why? why have a lottery? Again, you could do the same versions of you know, interview people, try to figure out who most wants to do this. Um, you could imagine kind of auctioning off the visas to the highest bidder. But instead, they said, we want a fair process that's easy for us to implement. And it was, I believe it was Pakistan that they were looking at, um, where they used the lottery winners and losers to see how doing a pilgrimage um, to, to Mecca affected uh, people's beliefs and attitudes. Um, it was cool, both because they got to learn from that, which was essentially an experiment, but also it was the same insight that like randomizing really wasn't like the kind of wasn't the barrier or wasn't the burden that it's sometimes set up to be. It actually there was like the simplest thing. And the third example I'll give of a similar setup uh, was Nick Bloom and collaborators when so they had this paper on C Trip, like a Chinese travel agent, where again they had a lottery process for deciding uh, who could work remotely, and there it was a pretty easy way to set up an experiment. They just said, "We're going to have a lottery. We're going to be randomizing," and it could be very informative. So I think that, like one of the one of the one of the barriers when thinking about experiments as being too costly, too complicated, or too unfair, I think there may be settings where that's true. But there's also lots of settings where experiments could be a fair way and an easy way, and a low cost way to allocate things when there are capacity constraints.
0: Although in that case, the the experiments or the the lottery, it's the reason there was lottery is more like yeah because they 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 wanted that out of fairness, I guess. So the there's no one no one opposing it who had a specific uh, other approach in mind, um, or at least no, no compelling other approach offered itself, I guess, were they, did they subsequently change like how roommates or, you know, trips to Mecca or, or work from home, uh, was assigned afterwards in response to these, or was it more like just taking advantage of, you know, there was a randomization so then we can learn something about something else, but really the goal was not to evaluate the randomization and then try something different in the way that like with the uh, you know, advertising experiments were actually randomizing the advertising because we're trying to figure out if this advertising is itself worthwhile.
1: No, that's exactly right. So this wasn't the upsetting out, but that's kind of the point that, uh, that's kind of the point that we discuss around this in the book, that this isn't a situation where they were even trying to learn anything. It's just that sometimes randomizing turns out to be an easy way to do stuff. So now more kind of, we take that as a lesson that it doesn't have to be a complicated burden always to run experiments. Um,
0: right. And so yeah so you mentioned you mentioned fairness though so um what's the you know if you have and this has come up in i think there's a long history of this in the, the medical field as well if you have a a cure for something right you know new aids drug or uh anything else and or a new vaccine and people want to take it you know there's an argument that i mean assuming that like it's basically safe um that you should you know the doctor should be the one who decides who gets it and who who's not based on their best judgment and withholding it from people would be would be unethical um and there'd be similar uh similar stories maybe in a business setting like oh well we you know we need to advertise on Super Bowl Sunday because we always advertise on Super Bowl Sunday what do you mean you want to like not not do it that's crazy we're we're harming our business how do you um i mean no, that's not a, that's not that's not actually a bad example sorry cuz that's not about fairness but um you know, or if it's allocating school places or something like that, how do you how do you deal with that issue of of, of fairness? Feeling like yeah, giving, so, not so giving people the right thing is is bad.
1: Right. So there's this other part of like, what does it mean to be fair, and who are we being fair to? Right. So, like, let me start. Like a lot of cases where people are experimenting, you're experimenting you're experimenting because you don't know which thing is going to be more effective, right? So it's not like there's this thing, I know the thing is going to work, um, but I'm going to withhold it from you just so I could have more evidence that the thing is going to work. Yeah. Then now at some point, for sure, like you've got a hypothesis that you think something might work and you could argue that shouldn't you just roll it out to everybody there. You can think about what's the cost. Of the experiment and what's the benefit of the experiment and the benefit is that it's going to give you more certainty to to know what's going to work going forward and the cost is that you're going to be withholding it on some uh, set of people now. Now I could give like um, a two-stage version of this that comes from an interesting new paper um, looking at looking at like essentially a marketing type of setting, but where they wanted to say is like, imagine like you have two versions of a product you're trying to decide between Um, or two messages in a marketing campaign that you're going to send out. And you're going to send the thing out to 10,000 people. Actually now, like you might think 10,000 people for a marketing experiment, it's probably too small to be like power to run the type of hypothesis test that we might be used to, yeah. So then there's this question, what should you do? Should you just pick your favorite message and send it out to everybody? Should you just randomize? If you randomize, how many people should you give each to? Um, and in their paper, they were essentially there. They were thinking about the profit motive, but broadly speaking, however you want to decide benefits, but think about the profit motive of an organization, trying to decide how do I allocate these messages? At what point do I say, like, let me just run one of these at what? At what point do you stop the testing and move on to like a rollout phase? And they have like a nice way of thinking about power calculation where it's like you could think about the testing phase and the rollout phase, and you would want to allocate people into one of those two, or you either, you have some number of people who you're going to test on and some other uh, set of people that you just want to roll out the winning product on. And there, they actually, essentially what that gets you to is a simplified version of a bandit problem, where you would run smaller scale experiments that give you enough signal to go on uh, to get to what at least kind of, if you buy into all the assumptions, would be the profit maximizing way to experiment versus roll out the thing you, that that the data suggests is better.
0: Right. So you're trying to figure out what's what's the right dynamic strategy because yeah, on, yeah on I guess it must hinge to... a lot on the on on your prior beliefs. I think that maybe in, in real organizations that may be an issue. Right. If someone has a strong prior belief that they know the right thing to do then it's clearly at least in their mind under their assumptions about you know the likelihood then it's costly to not do it to everyone right now but then i think part of the lesson of, of running all these experiments is that we should all be a little bit more humble and, and agnostic about about our prior beliefs coming into things because we really yeah don't so the know accuracy
1: of beliefs is is an important piece there so like another way to think about this is just like where where are people's intuition accurate and where is it a little bit off? And when it comes to situations where somebody says, look, I'm not going to run an experiment because I already know this thing is going to work. I think both the BIT one example and the eBay example sort of surface things where, like surface situations where probably somebody, like in both of those situations, there was somebody who thought what they were doing was just fine, but maybe overconfident. And to me, like the, the broader evidence on overconfidence suggests that there's probably lots of situations where we're under experimenting because we're too confident that we should just roll out the thing because we know it's going to work. So to me, when I think about like the behavioral literature and that, how that fits into whether we have too much experimentation or too little, I would say that errs on the side of pushing us toward too little experimentation and not too much.
0: Right. Which brings back to, yeah, the point you made at the start that I think the, um, this the you know experimentation technically is just an approach to analyzing you know theories or or estimating parameters um but it's it's clearly very closely linked to the behavioral economics literature partly because well uh, yeah tell me more about like why why is it it seems like everyone who's in, in experimentation you kind of have, maybe because all economists are behavioralists now to to uh varying degrees but but why is it so closely tied to the 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 you know, this union of, of psychology and economics that, that we call behavioral economics.
1: I would say, like, like, just to add on to that and to put a little bit of extra nuance in that, I don't think it's kind of exclusively behavioral experiments that are sort of making their way into practice. I think kind of behavioral experiments have been important in in areas of experimentation, in part because if we think about the types of behavioral policy experiments that have taken off, there now, now... Um, Hundreds of people working at BIT. There are many groups that look like the UK behavioral insights team that are all running experiments. So I think the fact that, um, roll so I think on the one hand, like rolling out uh, different versions of messaging, once we sort of know that it's hard to, that there are flaws in decision making, that experiments get help to sort of uncover them and improve. Uh, the design of like a message or an intervention going out. So that's like one piece of it. The second there is it's been plugged into settings that are ripe for experimentation. So if you think about BIT, you know, get, that's a setting where uh, like, like tax letters and um t- making sure that people uh, take um like vaccine uptake is another example, right? Where there's just lots of behavioral interventions, but lots of measurable outcomes, large samples, like settings that are ripe for experimentation. So that's like one piece of it. The other piece of it is why is it linked on the experimenter side is that it's our flaws in intuition that may be making us uh, under experiment relative to what we should be. So I think kind of recognizing these flaws could help to, uh, could, could help to see the case for where and when you would want more experimentation. I would come back to this ethics question again, like because I think the other analog from the medical literature to business experiments or social science experiments is, yeah, you are holding out something that you think may be better from some people. But by experimenting, you're learning something so that you could roll out the better option to a much larger set of people. So it's tricky to sort of think of a world where the optimal policy decision you know, is really to say like let's let's lose all of that information and not uh, not pilot this on anybody
0: right yeah unless unless you've got great confidence that you have the one solution but usually that that great confidence as you said is uh, is misplaced um, so um, yeah now that, that makes a lot of sense in terms of the behavioral connection so another another you mentioned ethics another you know uh, ethics related incident that you you talk about um, was this experiment by Facebook that got a lot of press? Um, can uh, can you talk us through that? Like, why why was that controversial, and what are your views on that?
1: So it's interesting. Like in the tech sector, there are many, many, many experiments that are being run at any time, right? So, like you could think about over ten thousand experiments being run per year at a company like Google. Um, like experiments are run at similar scales at Amazon and at Facebook and. Airbnb and Uber are all running lots and lots and lots and lots of experiments. So now, what happened in the case of Facebook? Now, this is going back a few years. They have run an experiment where they varied the messages that were being shown to people. um, And they were varying them in a way that they were looking at the sentiment. So kind of looking at positive messages or negative messages. And what they wanted to test was whether showing people more positive messages led to led them to be, say, happier or uh, to post more positive things and vice versa. And it got a lot of uh, backlash when it became public. It became public because they wrote a paper on this that was then published, I think, in PNAS um, a few years back. And it's an interesting experiment. So you think, like, was it ethical to run that experiment? Something I would say here is that if an arm of an experiment is unethical, you might think the experiment is unethical, right? So if you don't think that uh, Facebook should be showing negative posts, then are you really objecting to the uh, to the experiment that's bearing it, or are you ex- objecting to the fact that uh, Facebook was showing negative posts, which then could lead to negative outcomes? Mm-hmm. So for, for Max and for me, when we looked at this experiment, we don't want to, like, I'm not certainly going to endorse decisions that Facebook was making on their experiments. But like, one thing that I would say about this is that it's important to draw a distinction about what exactly you're objecting to when you see a company like that run an experiment, that thing, it's backlash. And in that case, I think some of the backlash was just, you know, people wondering why should Facebook be tracking emotions? Why do they have all this data? Like, kind of, Broader questions about Facebook rather than questions about the experiment, even though it's the experiment that was the thing that caused that led to the backlash. Like uh, headlines like Facebook is experimenting with your emotions. Yeah. And there's some research on this that kind of shows that people object to experiments even when they don't object to any of the you know, arms being tested. So i think kind of one part of what's going on is just there's a certain base level of experiment aversion where people just don't like the idea of experiments being run
0: yeah well this uh you know if you you phrase it that way right you're, you're being someone's guinea pig that's that's never never a uh never a positive analogy right
1: right except now let's think about what the alternative options are for um a company right so you so let's let's step out of the Let's step out of the Facebook domain for a second, because I think Facebook also, um, people may worry about like what Facebook's incentives are. Are they really incentivized to create the best product possible? And we could come back to that in a second about the, the implications of experiments in companies. But now let's just imagine you're producing vacuum cleaners, and you're not quite sure which vacuum cleaner um, is going to last the longest for people or have the fewest returns. So you can imagine piloting like kind of different levels of suction. So suction's an important thing for a <laughs> vacuum cleaner or, or uh, different types of brushes or different lengths of hoses. And it's hard to know which one people are going to be using in practice um, and how people are going to be using their vacuums. So there, one, one option is to, uh, to test different versions of it, see what error rates are, see what return rates are. And they are, I guess everybody's the guinea pig. But on the other hand, it's like, there's a, like I will come back to, there's a cost to experimentation. There's a benefit to experimentation, which is allows a company to innovate and converge on what the best version of a vacuum cleaner they could produce is. And it seems to be like a socially valuable use of experimentation there. On the flip side, you can imagine a situation where a company, where you feel a company doesn't have the incentives to help people. So imagine pricing experiments where a company is running lots of experiments to try to figure out how to how much they could get away with charging people in the profit maximizing um, level of prices. And that may make you more uncomfortable because now the company is getting more sophisticated about extracting rent rather than creating value. Um, so part of the thing here is experiments are helping companies to get smarter. And that's a good thing when they're using that information to help customers. But you may think it's a worrying thing when they're using experiments to get smarter about ways to capture value or ways that uh, you think are not going to be helpful for customers.
0: Right. Yeah. It's sort of knowledge is power. And so if we if the, the corporations have have more knowledge, you know, sometimes, of course, you know, the beauty of capitalism and sometimes their their knowledge will be used to yeah, give people better products, make people happier. Um, but yeah, sometimes it may just be used to to make more money for them,
1: possibly at the expense of consumers, and that's that's and, more worrisome. And can can I push on this a little bit because I think it's an important issue. And one of the things that we could be thinking about here as customers, as um, you know, data scientists, as researchers, is like how we could sort of enter this conversation to help guide what companies should be thinking about and what are the issues that really should be front and center. So something that's that I've been thinking about for several years now is um, discrimination in online platforms. So a few years ago, my collaborators and I had run this experiment on Airbnb. And we have been looking at Airbnb and uh, actually the whole thing had started with a case study that we had written thinking about how do you design a reputation system that people would trust so much that they'd be willing to stay with a stranger or rent their place out to a stranger, which is a pretty big deal when you think about it. Letting a stranger come into your house, stay there for a few days and just trusting they're going to, Hey, they're going to keep it clean. They're not going to do anything bad like that. You could trust that whole system. Um, And in that process, one of the things we noticed is that one way that Airbnb was building trust is they were showing these profiles of users where you would see the picture and see the name. And in fact, uh, to help build trust among hosts, they would say, you could look at the picture, look at the name, and then decide whether or not to accept the guest. So uh, my collaborators and I ran an experiment where we varied the name of the guest and found that names that were statistically more likely to be African-American were also rejected at a much higher rate. So distinctively, guests with distinctively African-American names were rejected about 16% more often than guests with white names. Now, Mm -hmm. there's a lot to unpack here. There are policy implications and policy discussions like attorney general's offices, were uh, engaged in discussions. HUD was engaged in discussions. Uh, Companies were engaged in discussions, trying to figure out how do you move forward. But one of the things that I've been reflecting on recently is that Airbnb had already been running lots of experiments. They were already a data-driven company. But I think what what this helped to do is surface a blind spot in their data strategy. They were focused on kind of short-run conversions or the easy to access data that's easy for a company to look at and measure and call a success. And one of the things that we push for then is that companies should really make sure when they're running experiments to think not just about these short run goals, but to think about what could go wrong as well. What are the unintended consequences of a change that they're making? How can they track it? How can they uh, bring it into their evaluation criteria? And how can they create that? Create products that are going to be more useful for a broader set of people. And what we want to say is that, you know, you should be thinking about not just how efficient or what the short run transactions are, but how inclusive is the ecosystem you're creating. And in response to that, Airbnb ended up creating a data science team focused on reducing discrimination. Now they and Uber and lots of other companies have started to adopt pieces of this toolkit of thinking about how do you measure discrimination in a platform? And how do you bring that a little bit closer to decision-making to help reduce bias in the platform? So it's not, I guess, kind of circling back to the initial question, it's not just, you know, do you use data or not use data as this good or bad? It's more, how can we have an open conversation about what data we care about, what metrics we care about, and what the company values and how those company values could trickle back to the data they're measuring, and then use that to guide. Uh, decisions and discussions around data.
0: Right. So, yeah, I mean, just as with companies in general, right, this, the, the, you know, shifting from just a narrow focus on short-term revenue or profits to to thinking more more holistically and also long-term about, you know, what kind of company do we want to be, which, you know, ultimately does circle back to profits because it's going to affect how customers and, you know, feel about you and also, you know, even your own employees, right? They, they want you to still be you know motivated by don't be evil and and make a lot of money but like they want you to not be evil and be part of the non evil organization versus just you know the the amoral conglomerate so so using data so it sounds like it just needs to needs to be more pro- there is some progress but needs to be more progress in in that being kind of that mindset broader mindset being integrated into the data science um world as well
1: yeah so there's like a beautiful article by Rob Kaplan and David Norton from like 1992 so this is an old article that they call the balanced scorecard, like, and this sort of introduces, right? So this notion that executives need to be tracking kind of a broader set of things. Um, and that that article I remember starts off with this line, like what you measure is what you get, right? So this outage that it's like you're measuring the thing and that's what every everything is going to be moving toward. That's like your compass. And I think that's particularly true in the digital age, even though they sort of pre- this article predated like the scaled use of experiments in the tech sector and in garments that we're starting to see now. But I think the insight is quite pertinent. And I think it's a common mistake that companies make because I think the tempting thing to do is to say, all right, what data do we have? People clicking on this thing, short run conversions. And for all the reasons that you were saying before, there's also pressure to say, we want to just figure out which thing is going to, going to help move traffic and just converge on that. And we want to do it quickly. So lots of short run experiments with narrow metrics. And I see all the things that cause pressure for that. But I think that's also some of the things that create blind spots for companies. And blind spots could be missing discrimination. Blind spots could be like kind of leading to short run gains, missing out um, long term gains. And blind spots could be whole areas where you should be running experiments, but you're not. So I think that part of the evolution now is, I think part of the message in our book is like, if you're a company that isn't data heavy, like that we're hoping to give some principles for managers to think about data and experiments. But even if you're a company that is data heavy, the hope is to help people have a managerial toolkit to get a little bit more out of the experiments that they're running and think a little bit more carefully about it. And I think if people take those lessons to heart, that it would shape the strategy you have for experimentation. Now give like an example of a company that I think has shifted their strategy for experimentation over time, and that's Uber. So Uber, of course, like many tech companies runs many, many experiments. But one of the things that they realized over time is that more isn't always better, but more careful is sometimes uh, the route to go. So when you look at when they rolled out Uber Express Pool, they did some of the easy stuff that you would think that one would want to do uh, when you're running experiments, which is they did some simulations on historical data. Um, They looked how sensitive people were to walking times and to waiting times and use that to put together some estimates of like how useful I thought Uber Express Pool would be. But then they rolled out a version of Express Pool I think in one or two cities to just see, does the thing work? Like, does anything break? And then they ran like the six city experiment where they then essentially use synthetic control groups to figure out, okay, let's roll the thing out and get a meaningful sense of when you put this out in a whole city, does it crowd out other Uber products? Like, does it have the same gains that you would get from looking at um, our simulations earlier? And only after that did they return to doing some simpler AB tests to sort of fill in the gaps in their knowledge. So I think that they've sort of shifted from testing lots of things, but maybe not doing it as carefully to testing a smaller number of things, but then being very careful about what they're measuring, what they're doing, how they're designing the experiments. And this is like a lesson that I talk about in my MBA course as well, which is that it's not just using data and I think it's a little bit misleading when people say, oh, well, the big thing that's happened is now we have big data and these massive data. For sure, there's cases where that's extremely useful, but I think that there's also a lot of cases where the more important lesson for companies to internalize is that a little bit of careful data could go a long way. So thinking about, is this a causal problem or is this a prediction problem? And using that to, to kind of guide which part of the empirical toolkit are you going to use Then if it's a causal problem, really digging in, like, what are the right metrics? What are my corporate values? How do the corporate values align to the things that I could track? Everything I'm tracking is just a proxy. Are they meaningful proxies? Have I cross-validated them? Am I missing blind spots? And then using that to design your whole strategy there, I I think could be an important step uh, for data-heavy companies to start to get more out of the data they're using.
0: Great. Well, I think that's a, that's a good note to end on because we're just about out of time. But uh, thanks so much for, for coming. And uh, again, uh, encourage everyone to uh, get a copy of the book and, and read more about it. There's lots of uh, other great examples um, in there, uh, also from companies like StubHub and Alibaba. And also, we didn't talk a, a ton about the, the public policy elements. But again, this is where a lot of this started and where it's been very widely used. So um, that's also a, a good place to, to learn more about Um, So the title of the book is The Power of Experiments, Decision-Making in a Data-Driven World, and it's by Mike Luca and Max Baserman.